This podcast was recorded before COVID-19 and protests around the death of all Black lives. Just as a reminder, here at It's Personal Podcast, we try to amplify the voices so often hidden in our world. Listen, take notes, and learn. Be nice, be kind, and respect one another. Peace. Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is going to be really dope, but I don't want any <laughs> You're putting yourself out there as practitioners who are growing and learning. Not at all. My name is Kwame Mbalia. I'm an author. Hey, I'm Padma Venkatraman, the author of The Bridge Home. Sure, yeah. My name is Natasha uh, Diaz. Code switching and all those things. I mean, all, all that. I- all the time. I mean, he's still on the road all the time, but you know, like as a new mom, the relationship that I have cultivated from there. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> This is amazing. This is so fun. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of It's Personal. We're on season two. And I am, again, always excited for my guests. We always see each other online. We had a chance to see each other at NCTE. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk a whole lot, um, but I feel like friendship is in the near future. Do you mind introducing yourself here today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my name is Cody Miller. um, And... Uh, for about seven years, no, not for about four, seven years, I was a high school English teacher um, in Gainesville, Florida. Um, And I'm currently, um, as of August uh, 2019, an assistant professor of English education um, at the college at Brockport. So right now I'm in uh, Rochester, New York. I have come to appreciate a good 40 degrees and sunny. Um, As I was kind of saying earlier, I, I, I was like, how will I survive you know, this weather. And, and now I'm like, okay, if it's 30 degrees and sunny, I, I can put on a hoodie and, and I'm good. And I bought, I bought a good parka. Everyone told me like, you have to buy a good parka. <laughs> like if you have a good parka and um, you have a good pair of snow boots, like you'll survive, you'll be fine. And uh, nice. so far, yeah. So in some ways, like I kind of have this, and it's not, it's not just my idea, but like this idea that um, kind of most towns and, and mid-sized cities with a um, big college presence kind of have similar um, like similar cultures and similar aesthetics and similar food. And although Rochester is certainly a city that exists outside of the colleges and universities that are inside of it, mm-hmm. it does feel a lot um, like a lot of similarities. Like I can go and get like a good coffee, right? Or like there's always like a good vegan ice cream option um, or um, you know, n- not to flatten out the differences with food, um, but Gainesville was a is a city that so much of the community and the kind of um, cultural landscape exists because of the university, um, mm-hmm. are driven by the university. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to be in a city where there are multiple colleges and universities. Um, the city exists outside of them, but at least the part of the city that I'm in, it's very driven by the colleges and universities around mm-hmm. um so um that's been really um that's been really interesting but yeah i think i'll, I'll say I, i'm in rush so i have to give a shout out to the garbage plate yeah um, familiar with the garbage plate um, no no so you asked me about food and, and i'm in rochester and i i feel like i'm um doing something sacrilegious that i didn't leave with the garbage <laughs> <plate>. <laughs> the garbage plate is um 
it is it, it's kind of like a rochester staple so it's usually um it's like two starches so it's usually like a macaroni salad and then some kind of potatoes and then usually like two burgers or hot dogs and then like a, a red sauce and then cheese and onions um and i am mostly vegan and, and there's a lot of vegan versions of the garbage plate and i have to say at first i was very skeptical um most so because of the name, I mean, it's got a garbage plate, but I've actually come to love it. And I think there's a genius in, there's a genius in when it's really cold, you just put like a lot of hot starches on a plate and you just, <laughs> and so I've come to love the garbage plate. So. That's a big, I'm going to look it up. It sounds, it's one of those names that I think that cool, trendy places, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but like, that's one of probably the reasons why people go because of the name. And then the presentation is probably just like unlike any other place probably in the world, which is really, really cool. Yeah. And, and I think it's, um, I, I don't know the whole history of the garbage plate, but like from what I can piece together, it was something that was very much um, like a, a working class uh, dish, right? That um, working people, um, put, you know, put together because you have all these different leftovers or you have um, the ingredients aren't super expensive. And, and, and the way that you know kind of capitalism always works its evils um of course. you can like you know there's like a 20 dollar garbage plate you can buy now it's like <laughs> that kind of defeats the whole like working class origin but mm -hmm. that is how you know, capitalism and appropriation always work so that's awesome that's awesome so just for the listeners can you share just like who is cody like who are you yeah um so i will say that i am not someone who can wake up at 5 a.m and do a podcast <laughs> So I first want to give do such a thing. Who would do that? <laughs> that because I am like, when I look at the time, it is there, and I'm like, oh, I slept until like you know pretty late. <laughs> so so respect there. Um, yeah. So when I thought about this question, it, it, it's a really hard question at first for me to answer because I wanted so badly to first name like what I do, right and. I think so much, so many times what we do and who we are um, get linked together. And I do think of myself um, as an educator in all sorts of spaces, right? And that is such a huge part of my identity. Um, but then I also was like, I don't want to tie my identity to the thing that gives me a paycheck to help me live, right? But then so oftentimes we have to because of, you know, kind of the way we Sure. We live in capitalism and our labor so much is part of our identity and whatnot. Um, but I kind of got over that. So I'm an educator. That's really important to me. I am a, a queer educator and um, I am someone who deeply believes in the promises of democracy. And I'm someone who deeply believes in fighting for um, the greater good. And I think that a lot of that comes from growing up as a queer person in the deep rural South. Um, of North, North Central Florida. Um, North Central Florida is culturally and politically much more like South Georgia or Alabama than it is like Disney World. Um, sometimes when I tell people like I'm from Florida, they're like, oh, you must have went to Disney, you know, every weekend. And it's like, no, I, ha I had like one red light, right? And it was like, it was like when we got a Dairy Queen in my, in my town. So not that far from Florida. Um, but I do think growing up as a closeted queer youth in a pretty hostile environment during the height of the George W. Bush presidency shaped the way 
not only I see myself, but also just kind of the way I see the world, right? And the way I think about schools and the way I think about democracy and the way I think about people. Um, and I think that for the longest time, it was really hard for me to understand how my upbringing shaped me. Um, and it's only been something in the past five years that I've really had to think more deeply about. Because I, I, um, I used to reject a lot of my, uh, or, or not even reject, but kind of try to hide the fact that I grew up in this kind of really rural um, environment mm -hmm. uh, for, for lots of reasons. And I would say only in the past like five years, yeah, have I been able to really kind of think about what, what did that mean for me? Mm -hmm. So what did that look like as a child for you? Like, do you have siblings? Um, what did that, like your family life look like growing up, like in your house? But what yeah. did little, little Cody look like? Sure. Yeah. Always in, always in a Power Ranger outfit. I feel like that's like, <laughs> yes. I always dress up as a Power Ranger. Which, which uh, Power Ranger? Which Power Ranger? Um, typically the Red Ranger. Red Ranger. Uh, which is funny because I think now as an adult, I probably was far more like Billy the Blue Ranger. Um, <laughs> like I was like the Red Ranger was always like action oriented and fighting. And like, that wasn't me. Like I was always reading Animorphs in the corner. So I don't <laughs> know why. <laughs> But maybe the Red Ranger was the leader and I wanted to be a leader. Uh -huh. I'm not, um, I think that's something I'll have to like unpack as I... As, as I <laughs> you totally should do that. <laughs> like, you know. Um, so my parents, um, my dad came from um, abject poverty. Um, his dad died when he was 13. So I, I never knew my paternal grandfather and, and he and his mom had a pretty strained relationship. So I really never knew my paternal grandmother either. Um, and then my mom came from a working class family and was um, someone who was really popular and the homecoming queen, which um, in small Southern cities, like homecoming queen is um, still a big deal. Yeah, no, it's also, <laughs> I would say like a homecoming queen, the election of homecoming queen is like as important as like the election of like a governor. Oh, and like all important is like maybe the president right like it's it's a very big status symbol in, in southern culture um and my parents had me when they were both pretty young um my mom i think I was like 21 when she had me um so that they were pretty young and um they stayed in the small town that um that i grew up in my dad before getting with my mom was spent some time overseas as a marine and i think that um so the place I grew up was was pretty um pretty stricken by poverty um but my family because they had good state jobs were um I would say like in most scenarios would be seen as kind of middle class right like middle working class but because of the socioeconomic reality of where I grew up they were pretty much upper middle class um so I would say I was like pretty economically privileged especially given the area if that makes sense um mm -hmm. so i saw firsthand what state jobs and public jobs could do to build up a family right and and of course the fact that both of especially my mom was known this you know known in, in the small town and whatnot and the fact that both of my parents are white played a huge part in that that they were able to accumulate this wealth in public employment um but that definitely shaped also my belief in the role that like government and public intervention can make people's lives can make people's lives better right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then i think moving forward what did your let's say high school life look like because 
I'm picturing that there was a lot of change um, as you got older, um, as your family started to look a little bit different as well. Yeah, so um, in high school, um, I went to a really, the county I grew up in um, has two elementary schools, one middle school and one high school. Um, So the high school I attended, and the county itself is probably about 60% white, about 40% black. Um, the high school itself was on paper an integrated high school, right? Mm-hmm. There was only one high school. Um, and because of poverty, it kind of forced integration, right? Like there wasn't, like white folks didn't have enough money to build another school, basically, right? Like mm-hmm. poverty uh, necess- you know, made integration necessary. Um, but I did notice even, I think, Growing up, especially my senior year, but definitely now looking back, realizing that although the high school I attended was very integrated, um, this within the school was very segregated. So what I meant by that is I, like almost all of my honors classes were racially homogenous, right? Like everyone was white, basically. And that's something that really... I didn't have the language then, right, to describe it, but now I certainly understand as the role that tracking systems can play to still keep kind of capital, um, economic capital, you know, kind of keep economic capital to like white folks, even when the school itself is integrated. Mm-hmm. So that was something that really um, shaped, from my schooling experience, that shaped the way I now understand schools. Um, also in high school, although my high school experience wasn't the best for lots of reasons. Um, I wasn't out in high school. It was, it was not safe to be out at that time. Um, I didn't really enjoy high school. I had some good teachers. I had some teachers that were bad. And then I had just like a lot of teachers that like, I couldn't really ever tell you about them, like, mm-hmm. like whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also was class president all four years. Um, I was really good at politicking. Um, I think I got that from my mom, who was a homecoming <laughs> I had to learn how to like navigate and gather the votes and like, get the power when necessary. Um, but I was probably the most significant event for high school for me was actually um, it was 2003, I believe, um, the Dixie Chicks, which um, were this really famous um, country trio that I really loved growing up, still love, still love now, um, spoke out against George W. Bush, um, specifically the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And the comment was something like, um, you know, we're ashamed the presidents from the United States because they're also from, from the United States. And the presidents from Texas, but they're also from Texas. And there was a huge backlash against the Dixie Chicks and people had burned their CDs and they, they would say they were traitors. And that kind of fervor was very much part of um, the way people in my school reacted to like the Dixie Chicks. And right, on one hand, it is about the Dixie Chicks, but on the other hand, it's about something bigger and noticing the role that when you're trying to speak up against something that's bad, there are so many forces that can like shut that down. Mm-hmm. And I was, I in high school started to um, begin to see myself more politically and specifically more politically liberal than my parents who were pretty conservative. And it was that Dixie Chicks um, event that really made me say like, I think war, I think the Iraq war is, is, is bad. Um, I think George W. Bush is a bad president. Um, and I think that the country should go in a different direction. And, and so in a lot of ways, the uh, reading Animorphs in elementary school and then listening to the Dixie Chicks growing up radicalized me. So. <laughs> I love it. It's so cool to hear, though. Like, I think even and I think back then I was somewhat similar to you in a sense that I, 
I knew things were going on, but there were no reason for me to really talk about them until um, people that I would see on television or through entertainment finally started to like use their voices to share their opinions about stuff. And I find even, I find now, and I think maybe similar to like, I'm more aware that there are more people that are um, feeling the freedom to share um, their thoughts on every type of issue is allowing, I think, for more opportunities for kids and adults to feel the exact same freedom. Um, so I'm not surprised. Like the Dixie Chicks are cool. Like I totally understand that and where that comes from because they, they, them and everyone else who had kind of started that work back when um, it's kind of has paved the way for like all those other entertainers, professional athletes, people in the limelight, so to speak, to to kind of do those things. So yes, for the Dixie Chicks, like that's amazing. It's amazing work, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, that also for me, um, I was really and still am, but but definitely much more an undergrad, really into studying um, mass mass resistance movements that get led from popular culture. Um, so you know, an undergrad could look back and be like, oh, the Dixie Chicks, that made sense. But also that's like an entry in a long history of, of artists speaking out and using, um, using their platform to advance justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's been true from the civil rights movement. That was true in the women's liberation movement. That's been true in queer rights movements um, that popular culture has played an important part. So um, like in another life, I was the historian of popular culture. And like that, <laughs> so cool, but so cool to have people like that who are often not looked at as activists or people to speak up and for them to be able to do that now. And then we, for us to have students at all age levels to to be able to be like, yeah, they make cool music or they do cool things, but they're also trying to spread love or community um, and speaking up against all of these like injustices that we feel need to be changed or talked about in the world. So yeah, I think it's really, pop, pop culture itself is just such a um, pivotal, um, sort of uh, idea um, that we often forget about and how powerful it can be um, when it's talked about with like the right people. Totally. And, and I think too, um, what you're alluding to as well is that a lot of, a lot of figures and text in pop culture can often be like a blueprint for youth activism, right? Like totally, totally. if yeah. you don't have, um, you know, like, I didn't have any blueprint for what activism looked like coming from a rural conservative area, at least the kind of activism that like I wanted to engage in. Uh, there was certainly lots of models for activism <laughs> I don't, didn't want to engage in. Um, and I think that there is something to be, something to be said on the way that when popular culture kind of multiplies and becomes ubiquitous, that it, it, it can provide models um, and blueprints for students who otherwise maybe wouldn't have access. Um, I didn't have access in my in my localized um, context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's something I love. I love talking about, and I love just how simple it can be now to access that information and then use. It. Like I teach third grade, but I'm able to show third graders like that. There's people out there doing this work, which is again just amazing. It's really really cool. We're in a really interesting, I think, 
time of the world where there's so much happening, um, so many things to talk about, um, which can, it, it, I think it just, it spares up so many different types of emotion. Like um, there's moments where you're super excited and you're ready to go. There's moments where you're angry, you're sad. Um, and to be able to help students navigate all of that and be ready to talk about those things, it's, it's really cool. I think it's really, really cool. Yeah, and I think that given the political landscape of the Philippines and the political landscapes yeah. of the United States, which both have presidents who um, I'm not a fan of, <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. to see the way, like, I think one thing that was really, like, I, I'll, I'll never forget, like, I think it, it was, um, it was the 2017-2018 school year, and this being the year, and we're going over norms and, like, expectations, and we're, we're talking about, like, building, building norms together for how we can, you know, kind of work together and grow together in class, and you know, a student, like, we were looking over the norms, and a student was like, you know, like, why does it say that the President of the United States can't follow any of these norms, right? And it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's huge. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I think it's interesting, so, um, it's so interesting, one thing that I really worry about, in addition to all the real material harm that, that the Trump administration is doing with and, and folks who are already marginalized is the degrading I worry about the degrading of young people's faith in democracy and faith in being engaged in the public mm -hmm. the reason I say that is um, the the 2008 election um, I was I was 19 it was the first election I could vote in and I think this is a story that's true for a lot of Americans my age voting for Obama was this um this huge symbolic moment right of like we grew up under the bush years we grew up under the iraq war we grew up under um these constant attacks on queer people these constant attacks on science um but having this um this figure of like oh my god this movement that young people got behind and it really felt like we were driving change and and i have lots of critiques of, of president obama especially on his education policies um but but it was this feeling of faith in the government, faith in what the government could be, I should say, faith in like what could happen if we all united and really fought to make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I just worry about young people growing up and seeing what's happening in, in the public sphere and in government right now. I worry that they, they lose faith that we can do things in the public space that like improve people's lives and make things better. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I start to have these feelings of like, oh my God, I'm so worried. Like, I don't want young people to give up on democracy. We never really have democracy in this country, but you know. Uh, then, I, then I look on TV and I see all these like um, amazing youth-led activist movements. And I'm like, okay, like the kids are all right. We're in good hands. They're the ones that, you know, that, that are the future. And, and um, so then I'm a little bit more faithful. And this is a cycle I have to kind of do every day to get to write like every Reminders. Day. Yeah, and I think every year it does seem like um, there are reminders of kids and um, young adults who have this idea of like, you know what, I'm just going to do this because I know it's the right thing. And they constantly, again, like you said, remind us that there is hope um, and they are not going to back down no matter what is going on in the world. Like these are their feelings about certain things. And I think the more we, again, talk about those things in our classrooms and we are outspoken about them, it 
again, that cycle hopefully will continue and constantly get bigger and bigger and bigger, hopefully. Yeah. And then I think like, so um, back in 2018, I was a chaperone for a, a bunch of students at the school I taught at and then students from surrounding schools um, who organized a bus trip to march for the March for Our Lives. Um, cool. and, and that was such a powerful transformative experience. And even after that trip, after school, students and I would lead efforts to like write postcards and to like find out which legislators, you know, were not on, on the right side of, of these issues and, and write to them and kind of um, the build movement, the Gay Straight Alliance at the school I taught at. Um, during Pride Week, like one day they had all of these, they had pre-made postcards for local legislators and like telling wow. them like, write to your legislators where they stand on these issues, you know, and how can, and I think that is like a reminder of like the power and I should say the aspiration of democracy and what it can be. Um, and those are moments that really motivate me and uplift me to be like, okay, like, um, you know, and maybe this is narcissistic on my end and, and not generational narcissism that like millennials are going to change it all and make it great. Uh, and here we are. So like, oh, maybe Gen Z will do it. <laughs> That's so funny. So you have, what, what do you teach in university? Like, what do you, uh, what does your courses look like? Yeah. So, um, I run an English education program, uh, which is really awesome because one of my favorite things I did as a high school teacher um, for the last four years of my time as a high school teacher was work with um, student teachers when they did their student teaching, which was um, one of my all-time favorite things to do. And so now I'm in a job where like that's the majority of what I do, um, which is really perfect. Great. So um, last semester I taught a course on middle school methods, so how to teach English um, within middle schools. And I taught a course called Issues in English Education, where we looked at some of the pressing um, what I thought were the most critical conversations happening in English education at the time um, and where, where those conversations have been and where they're going. Um, and then this semester, I'll be teaching a class on high school methods, um, so teaching English to high school students, and then also a class on teaching uh, reading, writing, and literature. Nice. But I feel like I've been really lucky to kind of um, hit the ground running. I have a super supportive department. Um, so in, I, in the summer, I'm teaching a class called LGBTQ Topics in Education. So it'll be wow. a class how historically and contemporarily schools have been sites that often deny LGBTQ people's humanities. Um, but we're also going to look at ways in which schools can be places that affirm LGBTQ people's humanities. Because um, I always want to provide not just students, but people in general, when we talk about um, systemic marginalization and oppression, which is very real, I also think it's really important to highlight the work of resistance and the work, the ways in which people have resisted that oppression and then created better spaces for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll be part of that class. That's exciting. And is this something you're kind of building, did you build this on your own or is it just something that had already been in place kind of before you got there? this course? Yeah, so the course pre-existed as a course. Um, it was called Gender Issues in Education. Um, and then it hadn't been taught in forever, but it, it existed in the books. Uh -huh. um, and I'm someone who's really good about kind of, when I enter an institution, I like to know its history. So um, I try to like look through all the old course catalogs and kind of think what, you know, where is this coming from? Uh, what's going on? And, and so I saw that and I was like, huh. Uh, this could be like revamped where we talk about sexuality and gender identity. 
Um, and I had a really, I have a really awesome department chair who was like, yes, do that. So awesome. yeah, so it's, it's, it's a revision of a long, uh, of a, of a course that hasn't been taught in a long time. Yeah. And I think it's, it's having someone who comes in, who's fresh, they probably know, and then knowing you through either, whether that's interview or just conversation that you're going to do its justice because it's something you're passionate about as well. Yeah. And I think that, um, one of like I said, I, I loved having student teachers and teaching student teachers because I felt like it was someone just entering the field in the profession and having lots of ways to look at things and kind of say like, here's what I like, here's what I want to build on. And it's nice now to be in a position where I'm like, okay, I'm doing this profession. Here's what I like, here's what I want to build on. And, and after I'd been, you know, teaching for uh, seven years in a school that I loved, um, I felt really comfortable in the school and I felt like I knew my space and, and mm-hmm. it was great. And I, I loved where I worked. Um, but it had been a while since I had that moment of like, Oh yeah, I'm new in this environment. What's been done. What's going on. Where do I want to like, what conversations do I want to join and what do I want to build on? Mm-hmm. Cody, tell me something that um, I probably don't know about you or something the listeners probably don't know about you. Yeah, so so two things. One, I grew up driving four-wheelers and hunting and fishing, <laughs> which is um, <laughs> something that people have a hard time. Uh, <laughs> I could see you doing that. I could totally see that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I drove four-wheelers, I hunted, I fish, I, I, knew, I knew all that stuff. Um, so, it, which is interesting. I think it, it kind of goes with when I have conversations around gun um, gun safety legislation, it is something that like I can always draw on, right? That like, oh, I know what it's like to shoot a gun. Like I had, I had that. Ex- it, it's not a foreign experience to me, right? Um, so I, uh, so that's like you know, and now I'm like this, like you know, mostly vegan. But yeah, I grew up. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing is, this is something that I have had to, in the past few months, be more honest with myself with. Is I think that in person I come off as a very outgoing um, and confident person, which mm-hmm. and I am, I'm pretty outgoing and in a lot of ways I am confident. Um, but I also have struggled a lot with questions about uh, imposter syndrome and, and questions about what is happening next and, and self-doubt. And I haven't always done a good job being open about that. And that's um, something I've been trying to do more since moving into this position is being a lot more visible about my own doubts and times when I don't succeed. Um, because that for me is really important. I think we should remove shame from things like doubt and things like failure. Mm-hmm. And it's something that philosophically I've thought about for a long time, but I haven't really done in practice. So mm-hmm. this year I'm, I'm trying to be a lot more um, aware and, and, and honest about when I'm having doubt or when I'm having worries or when I'm having anxiety um, in ways that I always tried to hide growing up. And, and so. That's all I think. Yeah. It's funny because I just finished reading um, heavy and I had the same conversation with my wife, just from some of the parts in the book that talk a lot about shame and having this like sense of being able to reflect and have those conversations when you're having those feelings and how valuable that can be. Um, on your own like mental health and your growth as like a person because we often forget and we are internalize all of these things allow all these things to happen and then we sit on them and we sit on them we sit on them and over time they just build up right Um, but I totally agree with you like the power of reflection is like something we forget about sometimes I forget about in the classroom 
Um, that's where a lot of the learning happens, right? Um, so it's so good to hear you say that because I think that's a good practice for for everybody, honestly. Yeah, and, and on your point too, I think that the way we're socialized to not talk about, the way we're socialized to like hide shame, right? And to like not, and to, especially as teachers to like not talk about failure. Um, I think that does a lot of harm for schools and the profession. Um, because I think that, you know, if we're always like, I got it, I got it here, I'm doing so great, look at this, look at that. Um, it doesn't give space for other teachers to say, well, like, what about when I, something doesn't go great, right? Like, am I not, am I, am I not living up to the standard that someone else has? Um, when instead, I think if we collectively said, here's moments where we fall, you know, we fell short and here's how we grew and here's how we learn. Um, I think it would just be a, a far more humanizing, it'd be really humanizing work for the profession, but I also understand that there are structures that make that hard, right? Like when we live under a hyper surveillance landscape in schools where everything has to be observed and then quantified, um, I get why people don't want to be vulnerable in that sense. So totally. um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a systemic part as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I want to thank you so much just for coming on and being like so open and honest. I think one of the reasons why I love uh, self for selfish reasons, I think this podcast in general is because they get to talk to people like you who um, have really cool stories. And I think we only touch the surface of like some of the amazing things you're doing and who you are as a person. So um, I'm excited to just kind of get to know you more. I'm happy I had this conversation with you. I'm happy that I can like see you and we're like talking right now. <laughs> um, and I think the other part is I think people are also going to have an opportunity to to get to know you a little bit outside of just the, the education stuff as well. Um, so thank you just for coming on and spending time with me today. Oh my God, thank you so much. I um, looked at the folks who've been on the podcast and who are upcoming and um, I just feel so honored to be included with those people. So many awesome people and so many personal heroes on there. Um, so I'm super honored. Take care. Take care. Bye.